Why First Corinthians? You know, I mean, you got several choices. We're, we are uh, a church that does expository preaching. We preach through books of the Bible. You say, well, you were in the Old Testament. You always go back to the New Testament. That's true. I try to go back and forth. And you said, well, you were in an Old Testament genre back then, a narrative, and now you're going to do a letter. And that's true also. We try to mix up both the Old and New Testament and the different genres. But why First Corinthians? You might say to me, well, Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, to, to understand, to preach the full counsel of God. So we're doing that, and that's true also. All those things are right. But 1 Corinthians is a letter that is particularly relevant, I believe, for the Western world and certainly for the Western church today. The similarities, and this is not just our moment. I think we could go back decades and, and, and look at 1 Corinthians and say, this applies to our time given what was taking place in the church at Corinth. For those of you who do not know your geography, Corinth is a city, was a city in Greece under Roman rule. At the time that Paul was there, it was a major intersection of trade routes that ran both north, south, and east, and west, and so it was a hub of commercial prosperity. The Romans destroyed it in 147 when they invaded Greece, and then 100 years, they rebuilt, 100 years later, they rebuilt it to its former glory. And Corinth was one of the largest, wealthiest, most advanced cultures in Greece, and we can say in the Western world at that time. There was urban prosperity. And where there is urban prosperity, as you know all too well, the sin of man prospers too. Intellectual advancements, material prosperity, and moral corruption. They were intellectually advanced, they were materially prosperous, and they were morally corrupt. And I say to you, does that sound familiar at all? I'm going to read to you a 19th century theologian historian, Ernest von Dobschutz. You like that? German, of course. He writes this of Corinth. This could be taken out of a contemporary publication about us. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure, surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete, steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength, are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. That, when I read that, I was chilled because that's, that describes us. That describes our cultural moment as well. You say, well, of course, we're fallen men. Yes, we are. But when we talk about the ideal Corinthian and the reckless development of the individual not submitting to superior to law, so self-centered had the Corinthians become, in the Greek there was a phrase that went something like, to be Corinthianized. And to be Corinthianized was to go to the devil. Paul made his way there on his second missionary journey, second of three major missionary journeys. He's made his way there, 51, 52. There's some debate on that, not a lot. He stays there a year and a half, and he plants a church. That's what Paul did. He was a church planner. And he planted the church in Corinth, and then he wrote, he wrote four letters. We have two extant manuscripts, not two extant. We have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We have extant manuscripts of each. But he wrote four letters, a previous letter, before 1 Corinthians, then he wrote 1 Corinthians, which we're going to look at, and then he wrote a letter in between, which is known as the severe letter, and then he wrote 2 Corinthians. And we also know from the book of Acts that Paul visited Corinthians, uh, the church in Corinth, twice after the initial year and a half. Once after writing 1 Corinthians, which was also known as the severe visit or the painful visit, and then he visited again after 2 Corinthians. So Paul was vested in this church. He loved this church. And what he, the word he had received about the church in Corinth after he had planted it is that they were in disarray. The church at Corinth had been Corinthianized. They had become as the culture. Idolatry, sexual immorality, greed, these are prevalent vices that make their way through the entire letter. But it wasn't just that. We see disunity. We see quarrelsome spirits. We see favoritism. We see wrong worship in the church. All plagued. The culture made its way in. And so the apostle sends off this first letter before the painful visit in hope that they will receive the letter, they will understand the letter, and they will repent and turn back to God. 
In fact, we can see that the theme of the entire letter is calling the church back to God, calling the church back to its right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Back to living as God had called and equipped them to live as saints, sanctified, holy people, set apart. You know, in, in the first nine verses here, in, in verses one through nine, the apostle Paul uses the title Jesus Christ or Christ nine times. Nine times in nine verses, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Why? Because the emphasis is on calling people back to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God's Son. The entire thing. He wants us to see that our whole lives, every aspect is supposed to be in right relationship to God through Christ that we have, past tense, been called by God through Jesus Christ. That we have, present tense, been called for God in Jesus Christ. And that we have, future tense, been called to God with Christ. And I want to focus on that calling this morning. I want to look at all three, past, present, and future. And all three define our identity, and all three should give us wonderful hope in what God is doing in and through the life of the believer. So three things I want to look at today, and don't get caught up on my prepositions. They are important, though. Called by God through Christ. Called by God through Christ, number one. Number two, called for God in Christ. Called for God in Christ. Number three, called to God with Christ. All right, are you ready? How many of you are ready? Do we, do we need to stand up and you know, get the blood flow? Are we all right? I need the oxyhemoglobin moving in your minds, all right? So cogitate. If you find yourself getting tired, just shake a little bit. You know, there's lots of room spread out. You know, the flight's not full. You're all right. If you need to stand up and walk around, do that. We shouldn't be so easily distracted, but stay with me, all right? Point number one, God, we're called by God through Christ. Paul starts off, I, Paul, was called by the will of God. He establishes both his authority and his submission. I love that. The authority that God has given him and his submission to the will of God. So he establishes that. And then he establishes the standing of the church in Corinth and the church throughout the ages. Look at what he says. To the church of God, called, implied by God to be saints. In other words, he says, before I begin to go into the the details, and as we get into the details of this letter, they're ugly. He says, before I go there, I want to remind you who you are. He's telling them, you're saints. You've been set apart, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, and one day, by God's grace, you'll be glorified. That's who you are before I start into this mess. And it was a mess. I want to remind you of your standing in the living God. And so he does that to the church of God, called to be saints. And he starts at such a a, a wonderful uh, foundational level. He's saying, every believer, whether you understand this or not, every believer, according to the word of God, says that you were called by God by name. Called by God. Grabbed by God, pulled in by God, redeemed by God. Every single true believer. In other words, this calling is a deliberate and radical act of love by God on you. How glorious is that? A deliberate and radical act of love initiated by God on you to bring you in. To bring you into the family of God. To bring you into fellowship with his son. To bring you into fellowship for all eternity with the blessed trinity. And he gives us two past actions. Look at verse 2. Two, he's talking past tense. Things that have happened to you. If you're in Christ, these have already happened. Whether you're aware of it or not. One, he says, those in the church were sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Past tense. First, let's look at the church being sanctified in Christ Jesus. When I use the term sanctification, and more often than not, when we use that term in the church today, we're talking about the process of becoming holy. The process the believer engages in through the means of grace to become holy as God is holy. This is how we usually think of it. But in this verse, it's important to see it's being used in the past tense. Paul says, in Christ, you are already sanctified. You say, well, wait wait a minute. Am I sanctified or am I being sanctified? And the answer, of course, is yes. You are sanctified and you are being sanctified. How so? 
This is an extraordinary teaching, and we actually had some verses in these songs that helped us understand it by God's grace. Paul's saying that underneath, undergirding the process of sanctification, of God transforming you on a daily basis to become as his son is, underneath that, undergirding it, is a sanctification. A past tense sanctification of a work that God has done in you. In other words, it's a fixed moment, a permanent displacement. We would say you have been permanently changed from the old self to the new self, from the old you to the new you. You say, well, how do you know this? Am I just you know, playing with words here? I'm not. And we're going to get to this in detail. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, verses 9 through 11. Listen closely. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes into this list. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You say, ah, but then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, past tense. Because I read that list and I see me. And he says, wait a minute, such were some of you. And then he says, but you were what? You were washed, you were sanctified. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, he says, you were all these things. You were an idolater, you were a murderer, you were a thief, you were a liar. But God has taken you at a, at a moment in time and he has sanctified you in Christ. He's changed you. He's washed you with the blood of Christ. He sanctified you in name. In other words, there's a break and there has to be. And we know that there is. There's a break in our, as we run in sin and we run towards hell. God comes in and he breaks that and now you're changed and you're new. That's what it means to be sanctified here in the past tense. about all of us brother as you are being sanctified in Christ daily know that you have already been sanctified in Christ permanently I mean you want reassurance for your faith he's saying I've already done this great work in you and I'm doing this great work in you and one day it will culminate it will culminate when you see Christ face to face and when you see him the Bible says you will be as he is I love that I love that Do you love that? Do you love that? I don't want to be the only one that's excited about this. Let me show you how he illustrates this again. Go back to verse 2. He says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Called to be saints. Called to be set apart for what purpose? Saints are all those God saves that are set apart to do his will. His will. And then we respond by calling upon the name of the Lord. So God calls us, he sanctifies us, and in that he gives us a desire in the heart to then call upon him. And that is the order, and it's an important order. You don't call upon him, and then he saves you. He saves you, and then you call upon him. He calls upon you. He comes and knocking, and he grabs you, usually kicking and screaming. And then he changes your heart, and he changes your mind. And he gives you new desires. And you call upon Christ. You call upon Christ. And Christ is your Lord. And this is is our past identity. This is who we are. Your identity has been solidified in the name of Jesus Christ. In God calling you, he sanctifies you. And when I say saint, I'm not talking about some glorified rank in, in, in a liturgical structure. I'm not talking about some post-mortem you know, honor that's given to someone. I'm talking about every single believer who's been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You are a saint. You're a saint. I love that title. I love referring to the body of Christ as saints. Saints of God. Because that's who you are. Not by anything you've done, but because of the great work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, so this call, I want you to see, before we move on to the next point, this call by God, it's not this general call. It's not a universal call. It's not, it's not the call that Paul talks about in Acts 17 when God commands all people everywhere to repent. All of mankind is called to repent. But this is not that call. 
This is also not the call of what I'm doing here. I'm preaching the gospel of grace, and I will call you to repent. But that's not this. This call that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians and substantiated in many other letters, John chapter 6, Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10, Ephesians chapter 1, emphasized here, this is the calling of God upon your heart. This is that internal movement that he makes, and he gets in, and he doesn't leave. I don't know about you. It took a year and a half. God called upon me, and it was a year and a half before I surrendered. But that entire time, he pursued me and pursued me and pursued me, and I couldn't get him out. And I tried. I tried hard. When God calls upon a dead man's soul and makes him alive, that's him coming in and doing the work that only he can do. You say, well, how do you know this? How do you know this is the specific, special, personal, efficacious call upon a man by God? How do you know this? Later on in this chapter, we'll see this next week, Lord willing. Verses 23 and 24. You can just throw your eyes down the page a bit and look. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That's the general call. When you preach the gospel of grace here at the time in Corinth, that universal call that would go out, it was a stumbling block and it was folly. If you're, you were Jewish, it was a stumbling block because you, you could not stand the thought of this Jesus Christ being the Messiah of the Old Testament. And if you were a Greek, it was utter foolishness to think that God would become a man incarnate. But look at what he says. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. That's the general call. And he says, but to those who are called, say, wait a minute, I thought they already did the call. Yes, the general. But to those who are called specifically by God, both Jews and Greeks, listen to this. This is the gospel. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, when the gospel goes out, many will hear it and many will stumble upon it and many will say this is utterly foolish. But for those that hear the gospel and simultaneously have the internal call of God upon them, there is regeneration. There is salvation. And so we proclaim the gospel and God does his work of calling man to be saved and man is saved. Man is redeemed. You say, well, what happens in this internal calling? What happens? Do you remember? Do you remember the first time you heard the gospel of grace and rejected it? Because you know what happens, right? The first time you hear it, you go, foolishness, stupidity. Or maybe there's conviction, you stumble on it. But when you hear it and you receive it, what happens? It's no longer, it's no longer a stumbling block like it was to the Jews. And it's no longer foolishness like it was to the Gentiles. When God calls upon you and the gospel comes in, everything changes. Everything changes. Because you see God for who he really is, this holy, majestic, glorious, everlasting being. And you see, for the first time in your life, you see yourself for who you are. Someone created in the image of God who has fallen completely. That you are wretched and deplorable and lost and ugly on the inside. And you see all that. And then God doesn't leave it there. And he says, now, in light of this revelation, turn to Christ. And he shows you Christ. And he shows you the cross. And he shows you the holes in his hands and the spear and the, the, the piercing in his side. And he shows you the hope. And when that happens, when that stirring comes in, then you hear the gospel. And it's not stumbling. It's not foolishness. It's your story. You're like, this is my story too. It makes sense for the first time. It becomes real to you for the first time. It becomes radically applicable to you because it now changes your whole life. That's the internal call of God. Taking us who were dead and making us alive. Taking thus, all of us, who were out in the darkness, stumbling around, fumbling around, and he brings us into the light. He takes us when we are utterly lost and he finds us. Do you remember what that was like, saints? Do you remember? Do you remember how utterly lost you were before God called upon you and brought the gospel to bear upon your life? I want you to remember it, and I want you to take that and then apply it to all those in your mission field because it's utterly horrible how lost we can be. How glorious when God finds us and God calls us. So many I know that are lost like this. This is not an invitation. 
This is not some pastoral invitation at the end of a sermon. This is God pursuing you. This is the hound of heaven coming after you. And he's going to get you. How glorious that he will get you. That God comes after you. How do I know this? Ephesians chapter 1. This is the God coming after you. Paul writes Ephesians chapter 1 verses, verse 4. He says, "Who God who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. This is the God coming after you. Paul continues in verses 5 and 6 Ephesians 1. In love God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious name. This is the creator of the universe, sets his eye on you. You think you're going to get away from God? Praise God we can't get away from God. He sets his eye on you, and he calls you by name, and he says, you're mine. You're mine. No longer will you be a son of disobedience. No longer will you be a daughter of lawlessness. When I come and I call, I will bring you in, and I will make you mine, and you'll be sons and daughters of glory. This is the God who calls. This is the God who pursues radically us, saying, you'll be mine once more. You'll come into my family. No longer will you reject my son. No longer will you reject his laws. No longer will you fight against my kingdom, but you'll come into my kingdom and become a prince or a princess. And you will serve, and you will love righteousness, and you will pursue holiness. God says, you'll come in when I call you and you'll know me as father, a father who is good and gracious and loves you and I will know you as son or daughter. Everything changes when God calls. Great passion. He calls us, he pursues us, he finds us, he redeems us, he brings us in to the fellowship of his son. He takes our hearts of stone and he cracks them wide open and he gives us our heart of flesh. He changes. You say, well, why would I call upon the name of Jesus? Because he changes your heart. You may be kicking and screaming at first, but he gives you a new heart and new desires so you will want to call on Christ. And that's how it works. He calls upon you and then you call upon Christ because you want to. You need to. You will, as the psalmist says in Psalm 34a, you will taste and you will see that the Lord is good. We call upon Christ because we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. We've come before a holy God and we realize that we are dead in our sins and transgressions and that we are going to be cast out of his presence. And then he reveals Christ and we taste and we see and we know that he is good. And so we call upon him again and again and again. So remarkable being brought into the fellowship that God, that God would call me or he'd call you to have fellowship with his son. This should cultivate in us, every believer, this should cultivate an Isaiah chapter 6 moment. God called Isaiah into his presence and when he saw God and he received grace from God and was saved by God, What did he say to him? What was the response by the prophet? He said, Lord, send me, send me. He didn't even know what the work was. He said, just send me. I'll do the work. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I will serve you every moment of every day for the rest of my life because of who you are and what you've done for me. Send me, Lord, send me. That's the right response. If you are called by God through Jesus Christ, point number one, then the right response is to serve. It's to go out. Let's look at point number two. Are you still with me? I need some water. Do you need some water? I pray I never lose my voice. We are not only called by God through Christ, we're called for God in Christ. We're called by God through Christ, called by God through Jesus Christ, and we're called for God, for his purposes, for his glory in Jesus Christ. Second point, you ready? Paul wanted those in in Corinth to have their identity, their identities to be grounded in Jesus Christ. In fact, what he was looking for was a radical reorientation. Remember, they had been Corinthianized and not Christianized. And so he wanted them to turn from the world and the ways of the world, and he wanted them to turn back to see that who they really are is in Christ, their relationship with God through Christ. 
13, and you know what? In almost all of Paul's 13 letters, he starts off with this reorientation, reminding us of who we are in Jesus Christ. Almost all 13 letters, which makes sense because daily we forget who we are. In Corinth, much like today, reputation, social status, resume, degree, bank account, friends, neighborhood, car, all, not cars then, whatever they had back then. It was their status, right? That defined them. Their identities were defined by the world, by the culture. Now, we know, you say, well, I know that's no different today. But I want to show you, you know, there are lots of indicators that we can go, yeah, we're like that. But I want to give you one that I've always found fascinating. And maybe it was because of this ridiculous marketing and communication class I took years ago in my undergraduate studies. And, and the professor talked about commercials and the purpose of a commercial. And, and there used to be, they always want to sell product, right? But there's been a really interesting movement in advertising. And it's not so much about selling a product or a service as much as it is giving you an identity or giving you purpose to life. You say, well, how, how could you say this is a ridiculous thing? Based upon what they say. I, I'm just going to read a few here. If you know it before I say it, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you the, the company. If you know the, the, the slogan, say it out loud, and then I'll say it. Nissan. Remember, Nissan sells cars. Right? Life's a journey. Enjoy the ride. That's a worldview. L'Oreal, ladies help me out here. I didn't know this till I read it. Do you know? Because I'm worth it. That's a worldview. Revlon. <laughs> of course, no one's going to say these, right? I don't know these. Revlon, feel like a woman. All right, younger ones, Sony PlayStation. Live in your world, play in ours. Toys R Us, everybody knows this. This could be the slogan for an entire generation. What's Toys R Us? I don't want to grow up. I don't want to grow up. FedEx, be absolutely sure. Merrill Lynch, be bullish. Ebsen Printers, see what you're missing. Mac, think different. iPod Shuffle, think random. They're selling product or identity? Product or purpose? I'll give you a few more. Probably have too many here. All right, McDonald's. You all know this one. McDonald's, you deserve a break today. White Castle, what do you crave? Burger King, you say, well, have it your way. They also have another one. Sometimes you have to break the rules. That's a worldview. Sprite, obey your thirst. Gatorade, is it in you? J.C. Penney's. Some of the young people are going, what is that? <laughs> J.C. Penney's, it's all inside. It's all inside. We're told that having wider teeth is not just affordable, it's life-changing. We're told that if you drive the right car, it's not just a mode of transportation, it's an extension of yourself. We're told that if you live in the right neighborhood, it's not just a matter of being safe, it's a matter of status. And so our identities, whether we want to admit it or not, our identity is tied up in our relationship to our, our jobs, our bank accounts, our bodies, our neighborhoods, and all these things. And we receive our identity from the culture. And the Bible again and again and again says, no, your identity is in Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, you are to receive your identity from him. The Bible wants you to think first and foremost in all ways and in all things, in your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And it's unrelenting in this teaching. Genesis to Revelation, it's unrelenting in wanting us to see that our identity is derived from God in God. Constantly, persistently calling us back again and again to this identity in Christ. Now, this does not deny, so let me be careful I don't move out to an extreme here, does not deny the existence or influence of friends or job or status or body. We're not saying, okay, none of those things matter. What it is saying is this. It wants all of those aspects to be rightly understood and proportionally related to your identity in Christ. Does that make sense? They're all supposed to come under 
And therefore, you can talk about your job or status or money or your body in the context of your relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, your relationship with Christ defines and informs all those other things rather than your bank account, your body, your job informing Christ, which is what we see more often than not. It's certainly what Paul was dealing with here in the church in Corinth. This is our calling to God. In other words, the calling for God is to live your life in such a way that everything, every single thing is, comes into submission to him. That your entire identity as a student or a father or a wife or a child or a friend or a church member, your entire identity is to come under and into submission to God through Christ. That's who we really are. Look at verse 2 again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Saints, holy people. In the Latin, it's sanctum, to set apart, to separate. You're supposed to be set apart and separated, not like the world, not of the world. By God, for God. What do I mean? You've been called by God and made saints by God for God. For what? For his purposes. For his will. For his glory. For his kingdom. In other words, when you're called by God, you're called for him. For him. Not for you or me or ourselves, but for him. To serve him and to love him and to worship him. Because he's worthy of it. And this, this calling for God is not something to be a saint. It's not something we act out. We're not to be like the Pharisees and act like saints or act like we're sanctified. We're supposed to be saints. We're supposed to be sanctified. That means your most inner being being transformed into the image of Christ. Why? Because you already are. Remember? Past tense, sanctified. That's the undergirding. You already are. Joshua, not you. Joshua, in the Bible, was called by God to go and possess the promised land. But this was a land that he was already promised that he would possess in Joshua chapter 1, verse 11. God had already promised it to him. So what was he telling Joshua? He says, go claim what you already have. Go claim what you already have. It's the same for us saints. We are called by God to go and possess holiness. Why? Because we already possess it in Christ. He's saying, go and be saints. Why? Because you're already a saint in my son. It's a radical calling to go and claim and become the very thing you already are. He said, that doesn't make any sense. It's hard, I get it, but it makes sense. I'll give you an example. I mean, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to, in living out our lives in Christ, we're trying to catch up with the work the Holy Spirit's already done. You're trying to catch up with it, right? Because the Holy Spirit's already sanctified you. So he says, catch up, work it out. Become the people that you already are. Lori's grandparents were, uh, they were raised during the Great Depression. And uh, her grandfather in particular went through a very, very difficult time lots of poverty. So they knew, they knew what it was like to be without. Well, they came through the Great Depression. They continued to work. And her grandfather uh, made some really good uh, investments in blue chip stock. We're talking back in the 1930s and 1940s. Some really good investments. And they also purchased property in North Beach in San Francisco. And so in their latter years, they were multimillionaires. With their property valuation and their stock, they were multimillionaires. And yet, if you were to walk in their house, you would have thought to yourself, they're living on government assistance. The carpets had holes in them. Lori's grandfather wore a tattered sweater, sweater that was thread-borne in the sleeves. In other words, they were millionaires but did not live like it. Now, there, there are many aspects of that that are wonderful. I'm not, I'm not judging or evaluating that. What I want you to see is they, they were millionaires, but they didn't live like millionaires. They didn't live with who they really were. And in many ways, I'm thankful for that. That's not good in Christ. 
You are a saint. You are sanctified. And so God says, I want you to live in accordance with who you already are in my son right now. You are sanctified right now, saints. With the sin that you committed this morning, you are still sanctified. With the horrendous week you just had, you are still a saint. You don't lose your sainthood because you sin. You don't become desanctified because you stumble. Now, the objections at this point usually come fast and furious, and I'm gracious that you're, you're not doing that to me. People will say, but I'm still a sinner. I'm still battling the flesh. I'm still weak. I'm still lacking. I'm still at times faithless. And that's all true. That's all true. We as holy people will do battle daily with sin. But what you do not lack, and I want to make sure we have this crystal clear, you do not lack power. This is a long road. Sanctification is a long road. Living as a saint is hard, but you don't lack power. How do I know that? Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. Back at the passage. It's always good to come back to the passage. I don't like it when people preach and they stay, get out of the passage. We stay in the passage. Verses 4 through 7, ready? Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. So he's talking to the church at Corinth because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So grace being poured out, right? That Listen to this, verse 5. That in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech, in all knowledge, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. And you know what Paul's saying here, because we don't like it. He's saying you are fully equipped to live like a saint. You are fully equipped. In fact, he uses this word enriched, and it literally means abundantly wealthy. You are abundantly wealthy with what? You're abundantly wealthy with all speech. That would include preaching, teaching, then prophecy in tongues. You're fully equipped, abundantly wealthy in both speech and in knowledge. In other words, they had everything they needed to know and to understand and live as saints of God. They had what they needed. They were not lacking. They were not lacking in power. They were not lacking in information. They were not lacking in knowledge. They weren't lacking the ability to even communicate that knowledge one to another. What was the purpose of all this? Verse 7 again. So that you are not lacking in any gift. In other words, they were fully equipped. The church at Corinth had been Corinthianized when they should have been Christianized. The church at Corinth was not lacking the power to live like a holy people. And Paul wants to make that imminently clear to them, and I would like for us to know that as well. I'll give you a few more. Ready? Now, I'm not talking about living a perfect life. That will not happen in the flesh. I'm not talking about living a sinless life. That will not happen in the flesh. But I am talking about growing in holiness. Are you still with me? Day after day, growing in holiness. Becoming a holy people. Being different a year from now than I am today. Radically different 10 years from now than I am today. Where is this power? It's in the gospel. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. God said to the apostle Peter, His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you hear that? His power, God's power, has been granted to us. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, the power from God has been given to you to be a saint. Paul says in the second letter of the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, even more pointed. He said, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. I love when he does that. All things, all, there's no exception to this. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know what that means, saints? You will not, I will not stand before Christ when we have to give an account for our lives and say, I could not. You will never say that. Because in that moment, it will be imminently clear that at every point in time that you did not, you could. You have power in Christ. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. There's power in Christ. There's power in his work. Real power. And we're not talking about this idea of it. Real power that's imputed to you through the Holy Spirit to be these people, that we might be this community. 
And that means what? That means you have the power to to do this radical teaching, and that's to take your whole life and bring it into submission to God. Your whole life. You say, my whole life, or just part of my life. Your whole life, your marriage, your career, your finances. I don't know what stresses you out. You know what stresses you out. Your friendships, you know, your home, your children, your animals, your church, your ministry. When it comes to the mortification of sin, when it comes to being holy as he is holy, we cannot say, I can't. We can say, I don't want to. We can say, I will not. But we can't say, I can't, because God says, unless God's a liar, that we have the power. We have all the power, all the sufficient power in all things to do what he's called us to do. And he's calling us here to live like saints. He's calling us to live like the people that we've been called to be. So, first point, you have been called, past tense, by God through Christ. Second point, you've been called, past tense, for God's purposes, for God in Christ. He doesn't call you to serve apart from Christ. He calls you to serve in Jesus Christ, because that's where your identity is to be derived from. Last point, your calling, now future, is to God with Christ. It's to him with Jesus Christ called to God with Christ I think one of the most practical questions that comes out of any teaching on God's election and God's choosing and God's calling one of the most practical questions that comes out is well how do I know I'll make it to the end I mean if God calls me today how do I know that I'll make it to next week or next year or how you know what if he gives me 30 more years how do I know that on my deathbed I will still be professing Jesus Christ as lord of my life and that's saints that's a legitimate question and I would say a legitimate concern given other passages of scripture Jesus Christ said himself in Mark chapter 13 verse 13 a verse we should all memorize it's the one who endures to the end will be saved that means you got to make it to the end. And what is the end? That's the moment that you take your last breath or until God comes again in glory. That's the end. Paul reiterates this. We're going to see this at the end of our study in chapter 15. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. In other words, if you hold fast to the gospel of grace, if you hold fast to Jesus Christ, that means you persevere to the end, then you'll be saved. And the converse being equally true, if you do not, you will not. If you don't make it to the end, you're not going to be saved. You can go your entire life, but if you forsake Christ in that last year, you have forsaken the Son. You say, where am I getting this? Look at verses 7, 8, and 9, back to the passage. Paul offers us great assurance. He says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse eight, who will sustain you to the end? He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What is the promise here? What is the promise that God offers us here? Is this promise saying, listen, saints, is this promise saying that if you turn away from the Son, if you forsake the Son, if you no longer believe that you're going to be saved? No, it's not. This passage is not teaching that. What, what is it teaching? This promise is that the God who called you will sustain you by keeping your faith alive. Remember, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The Bible tells us that God is the author and what? And perfecter of our faith. In other words, he's going to keep the faith going. He's not going to allow you or enable you to ever stop believing in Jesus Christ or stop following Christ. You may have hard times, but you will not forsake the Son if you've been called by God. I know this is an antiquated illustration, but it's the only thing that came to mind. My mind is small on these things, so I'll forgive me. You know what a fireman was on a, on, a, on a locomotive, a steam locomotive? You know what a fireman was? It wasn't someone that was there to put out a fire. It was someone that was there to keep the fire going. A fireman on a steam locomotive was charged with keeping the boiler that produced the steam, that produced the, the engine to go, 
to keep that fire stoked, usually with wood or coal. And so their job, there are great pictures of it where they're taking and they're, they're throwing wood or they're throwing coal in, and they keep the fire burning hot. Why? Because if the fire's hot, the water's hot. If the water's hot, the steam is hot. If the steam's hot, that that engine can go someplace. It can actually make it to its destination. Jesus Christ is our fireman. He's not going to let it go out. He's not going to let the ember of your faith dwindle and go out. He's going to come and he's going to stoke the fire and he's going to feed the fire and he's going to nourish. God will nourish our soul with his son. In other words, God will do what he has promised to do and that is deliver you to the end. You will not forsake Christ. You will not lose your faith if you've been called by him. And you must keep your faith because only those who come before the holy God with faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Back to the passage again. It talks about this guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day. In other words, who will make you guiltless when you come before a holy God? Only those who've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. Only those who continue will be found guiltless on that. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the great day of judgment. That's the great day of the Lord when God comes again in all of his glory to judge the living and the dead and he establishes that kingdom that goes on forever. Saints, what separates, well, many things do, but one thing that separates Christianity from all other religions is this understanding that God does this great work. Religion teaches that you do some good work and God will be happy and he'll let you in. Or you do some good work and you put God in your debt and then he'll let you in. That's religion. The gospel has nothing to do with that. The gospel reveals that it's by God's grace that we are saved and we need to be saved because if we come before God on our own, in our own flesh, by our own works, we will be guilty through and through. You say, well, how do I know that? Because I know the first and greatest commandment. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And not one of us has done that without guilt. Not one of us has done What is the second commandment? To love your neighbors yourself. None of us have done that well. well. What about some of the others? How many of you have taken the Lord's name in vain? How many of you have committed murder in your heart? How many of you have lusted after a member of the opposite sex in your heart? How many of you have stolen something? How many of you have lied? How many of you have said, I have, I have, pastor, I have. Thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of times. So what good work could I possibly do to overturn one of those sins, let alone millions? Nothing. Apart from Christ, I stand before God guilty, as charged. But in Christ... I am guiltless. In Christ, I have a Savior who came from heaven and he went to the cross and he died for my sins. This this Messiah that we believe in, he lived a guiltless life. He's the only one. And he did. He was sinless. I I can never think about that enough because I'm always blown away by it. And I know why they rejected him because that teaching is offensive that never a single thought of our Lord's was contrary to the will of God. Not a single thing that he ever did was displeasing to the Father. Not a word. Not one word came out of our Lord's mouth that was rendered sinful. So he lived this guiltless life. And then he went to the cross and he died a guilty death. He took our sins. The Bible says that he bore our sins in his flesh on the cross. Why? You say, well, I I know why. I've heard you say this every week, and I pray that you hear every week that I ever preach for the rest of my life. Why? Because that's where the good news comes. That if you're in Christ, he's taken the guilt, and he's given to you the righteousness that he rightly earned. He earned it. And you receive it from him. And he gives it to you freely. And then he says, here, I've forgiven you. I've given you my righteousness. I've given you my glory. Now you are a what? You're a saint. Now you're sanctified. And then he says, with all love, now live like it. Live as sanctified saints for the glory of my Father. This promise, we had a chance to sing this morning, upon a life 
I have not lived upon a death. I did not die. Another's life, another's death. This part of the verse is fantastic. I stake what? I stake my whole eternity. That's a long time. I stake my whole eternity on a life I did not live and a death I did not die. You say that, that means you know Christ. If he's the one that you're staking your entire eternity on, not your works, not your faith, not being raised in the church, not knowing the Bible, none of that, but in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, for those of you who are like me and you're really skeptical, but how do I really know he's going to be faithful to this? I mean, how do I know he's going to keep the promise? Look at verse 9. It can't get any more explicit here. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ninth time that was used. God is faithful. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse eight. God is called El Haneeman. El Haneeman, faithful God. That's his name. And the name represented the character. That's who he is. God cannot be unfaithful. And so he gives us this assurance and then you'll ask because you're ultra skeptical, but how do I know that God's faithfulness, how, do I, how does that obligate him to see me to the end? How does that obligate him? And God is. God's obligated in this calling to ensure your salvation. You say, what, 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 what are you talking about? I'm, I'm getting close to closing, so stay with me here. Look at verse nine again. The one who called you And the call itself was to have its right conclusion in what? In the fellowship of you in the Son. Look at verse 9 again. God is faithful by whom you were called. In other words, this calling puts God's name at stake. This calling means that if God does not deliver you to the end as he promised then he is no longer faithful because that's what he said he's going to do for the glory of his own son. And this goes back to our original point. If this calling is just a general, universal, gospel-going-out calling, come if you want, stay if you want, leave if you want, become a Christian, don't become a Christian, if it were that type of calling, then there's no assurance. But if this calling, listen, saints, you want assurance in this faith? If this calling by God is grounded in the promise that God made to bring you into the fellowship of his son, then God, by his character and nature, must, for his own name's sake, and for the sake of his son's name, complete the good work that he started in you, which the Bible tells us as well. He must. In other words, our assurance is grounded in the character of God, in the name of God, in the promise that he made to his son. Right? What is the inheritance that his son will receive? It's you. It's the church. So when God calls you, he will make sure that his son is glorified. He will make sure that there is a, a sanctum of people, a, 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 a sainthood of people set apart to worship his son both now and forever. And that's a great assurance. That means your assurance is not grounded upon you, your works, or even your faith. It's grounded upon God's faithfulness to deliver us into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he can say, as he did, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, 30, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he is glorified, guaranteeing what? Guaranteeing that his son will be worshipped forever. That's a guarantee. Jesus Christ will be worshipped both now and forever. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God is obligated by his own calling for his son's glory to keep us faithful to the end. He's obligated. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, 
He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I love that. That's simple for me. I get that. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do what? He will deliver you to the end. You're going to make it, saints. You're going to make it. You're not going to stumble and fall and be cast out. You will stumble and you'll fall, but he'll pick you back up. You're going to sin and you're going you're to struggle and he will forgive you. This road is not an easy road. It's a hard road, but you are guaranteed success in the end because of the name of God. If you are a saint, you're going to make it. And there's great hope and reassurance in that. All right, I got to close. I could go for like five more hours. You know, there was a time when, when that was okay. You know how long some of Spurgeon's sermons were? Jonathan Edwards, they go three hours. Three hours. All right. Paul writes this letter to reorient the church at Corinth back to God. He was writing that they might see that their identity is to be grounded in God through Christ. He's writing them to get them from, to stop them from being Corinthianized, to get them Christianized in the biblical sense. We're going we're gonna to spend several weeks in this. I might break midway and jump back to the Old Testament. I don't know. It depends on how long we go here. I don't know that I want a five-year study in 1 Corinthians. But we will finish the book. My desire, my prayer has been leading up to this, that this letter will reorient our hearts and minds back to God as well. That we won't find our identity in our bodies or our cars or our jobs, but we will find our identities in Jesus Christ, and then we too will bring everything as saints into submission to him according to his word. Every part of our life into submission to the living God. And this is our story, saints. This is your story. Your past, your, past, your identity past is God's calling you to him. He's already done that if you're in Christ. Your identity future, you're right now, it's God calling you for him, to love him, to serve him, to know him, to be with him. And your identity future, if you are a saint, your identity future is to be called to God with Christ forever. With Christ forever. Now, if you're not a Christian and you've been sitting here this entire time and you're thinking to yourself, there's no hope for me because I've not been called. There's no hope for me because I have not been chosen. I have not been called by God. I want to tell you to have no fear. Lost soul, listen with all your might. And I don't care if you call yourself a Christian, you can still be lost, listen. Have no fear. The freedom and the power of God to call sinners into the light of Christ is not intended to take hope, but to give hope. Because you know what that means? God's freedom and power to call, to call us out of the darkness means there's no sin in your life so big that you can be kept out. There's nothing that you've ever done. There's no number of sins that you've committed that can keep you from Christ if God calls you to Christ. Nothing. You can't be bad enough. You can't be miserable enough. You can't be sinful enough to keep you from God if he's called you. So if you don't know Christ, this this sermon is nothing but pure hope. You say, I haven't been called. I'll tell you, call upon him. Call upon him this morning. The Bible says, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon him. Even verse 2, it says, all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those are saints. Call upon him. If you call upon Christ with a sincere heart to be saved, it means that God's already called you. So call. I don't know what we're waiting for. Call upon God to bring you into the fellowship of his son that you might know God's glory now and forever. Call upon him. Let's pray. What a calling, Father. My first thought is repentance. We are and have been empowered by your Holy Spirit to be 
these sanctified people, to be these saints. I stand here and confess before you, my brothers and sisters, I am not. I do not live a sanctified life. I do not live like a saint. I have not brought all things in my life into submission to you. I'm so thankful for the grace that covers my failures and my sin. I'm so thankful, Father, that you have, past tense, sanctified me and my brothers and sisters here and our brothers and sisters throughout the world that for those that you've called, you have already made us holy. Set upon our hearts and minds, Father, by your grace, a desire to catch up with the work the Holy Spirit's already done, to truly work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to be these holy people that you've called and equipped us to be so much more than we are now. So much more of a church than we are now. Father, I ask that you would do all this work in us and our church and your church so that your son's name is magnified. So that we can say nine times in nine verses, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, to him be all the glory and honor. Take our identities and wrap them in him bind them to him that we might see ourselves clearly in the light of Christ and walk every day accordingly. I pray this, Lord, as a sinner saved by grace, we put no demands upon you. We ask you to be gracious with us in Christ's name.